Paul Hirsch received the Academy Award for his editing work on Star Wars in 1978. In 2005, he received his second Academy Award nomination for Taylor Hackford's Ray. He is the only person to ever win the Saturn Award for Best Editing twice. He is the author of A Long Time Ago in a Cutting Room Far, Far Away. Paul Hirsch, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you. Uh, so, just tell us, I mean, you've been, you've edited so many films, so many classic films, films that were at the beginning of my um, film-going experience, and I'm sure there's many uh, people's first experience of film, um, but how did you start off as a film editor? You didn't know in the beginning that you would become one. No, um, I went to Columbia University, and at that time, when you graduated Columbia, you either went to medical school or law school, or if you were a jock, you went to business school. I wanted to do something in the arts. I had always um, I had majored in music in high school, and I had majored in art history at college. So um, I wanted to do something connected to the arts, and I decided I wanted to be an architect. So I applied, and I was accepted at the Columbia School of Architecture, I go into this in some detail in my book a long time ago in a cutting room far, far away, but I'll try to summarize it. I was accepted to architecture school, but I didn't have enough points to graduate at the end of June, so I had to go to summer school that summer in order to get the, the points uh, I needed for my degree uh, to qualify for attending architecture school in the fall. So I discovered a program in Paris uh, at Reed Hall. So uh, I got into the program there, and the, uh, there were two classes, one in French literature and the other in French conversation, and we finished at noon every day. So I was on my own. I was free from noon on, and I had always loved movies, and I was wandering around the left bank, and I would see a, a marquee for a movie theater, and would say, such and such a film directed by Raoul Walsh. Mm. I thought, who's, who's Raoul Walsh? And there'd be a Howard Hawks festival, and these names of American directors were unknown to me, and they were putting them on marquees in, in Paris. I started going, and the films were in English with French subtitles, and um, I was exposed to a lot of wonderful, great Hollywood movies that had sort of disappeared from view in the United States. And then there was a uh, Norse and Wells festival at the Cinémathèque at the Trocadéro. And uh, the first night they showed, the Monday night, they showed Citizen Kane. I had heard about Citizen Kane, but I didn't know what it was. All I knew was the title, and which is the best way to see a movie. Yeah. And to know nothing about it. And then I went, and I was amazed to see the place was packed on a Monday night. And the film started, and there were no French subtitles. I couldn't imagine that everyone in the audience spoke English. But I think they went just to study the camera work and the editing and the music and so forth. When it got to the end, it, you know, it had such a powerful impact. I was just, I was just annihilated. And I, the next night, I went back and I saw The Magnificent Amberson. Mm. And the following night, they showed A Touch of Evil, and then Lady from Shanghai on Thursday, and then 
Friday night they were showing, I forget it was either Othello or Macbeth, and Wells was coming to appear in person. You couldn't get near the place. So I missed out on that. But um, those films had an enormous impact on me. When I saw them, I was made more aware of the powerful uh, effect of combination of visuals and sound and the potential that movies had for um, an artistic expression of some kind. And was it then through, I mean, watching that sequence of Wells films um, that you began to be aware of? Because when we're enjoying films, we're often not thinking about editing. I mean, now we are, maybe, but at that time, were you aware of this profession of editing? Or as you were watching, thought, that sequence is interesting. Were you starting to, like memorize things and to think about that could be something you could get involved in? Well, I, I had known about editing. I knew someone who had who was a film editor, but I didn't know anything else about it. I knew there was such a job as film editor. I remember when I saw Citizen Kane, one of the things that impressed me was a sequence where they're sitting at breakfast and the years go by. I was aware that it was some kind of storytelling that I hadn't, I was unfamiliar with. And I felt sort of unconsciously that it had something to do with editing. I mean, it was clearly edited in a way, you know, uh, I don't know if I expressly knew it was editing, but I felt it. In any event, I went back to Columbia in the fall, and I started architecture school. And one of the first assignments we had was to choose an imaginary person and then photograph their surround. That is, to take pictures of the world they inhabited. And it couldn't be a romantic person like a Bowery bum or anything like that. So I came up with an idea of a a woman in her 50s who lived on Park Avenue. And I photographed an expensive building's lobby and a doorman. And I photographed a a hair salon and an expensive clothing store. And I was running around the city taking pictures and having a great time. And then I'd come back to the school, and it was very hushed and quiet and uh, stifling to me. Mm-hmm. And on that time, somebody lent me a 16-millimeter Bolex mm-hmm. camera, and I shot 100 feet of film because I'd been taking pictures. I thought, well, I'll try out this movie camera. And I developed this 100 feet of film, and I was hooked. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this is so much more exciting than architecture. I was told that, you know, the likelihood would be that when we graduated into our profession, we would be designing the A-line of apartments in a building. And it didn't seem very... My idea of architecture was like Oscar Niemeyer or the giant sculptures like the uh, church at Holchamp uh, by Le Corbusier. Mm-hmm. And you know that was my idea. But the reality of the job is something much less than that. Very few people ever get to that point. But anyway, at around the same time, I visited a friend uh, from Colombia who had begun editing a small documentary in, a, in a, an apartment near the campus, and I went and visited him. He had a whole editing setup in his apartment. He had a bench and uh, rewinds and reels and all the equipment that you use for, for editing, including, most significantly, a moviola. I'd never seen one before. This was in 1966, and... The only way you could see a moving image in those days was either to go to the movies or to turn on the television. The image always moved forward, and it always went at sound speed, which means there was no 
fast forward, there was no pause, there was no rewind, it was absent from our consciousness in terms of a moving image. Uh, only professionals could do that, and it was not available to the average person. We had it with tape recorders. The, the idea of pausing a tape recorder and rewinding, that was, that was common. We knew about that, but not as applied to, to pictures. And when I saw this machine where you could stop and go back or look at a frame, look at each frame individually if you wanted to, this was tremendously exciting to me. So I just decided I'd had enough of school, and I stopped going. I didn't even quit. I just stopped going. You described it in your book, but um, just for those who haven't yet read it, and I think it's really illuminating for all the anyone interested in editing or just who loves film, uh, is interested in the history of cinema. It's great on so many levels. But in terms of how you learned your craft, you, you had the moviola. Just to speak a bit about that. Right. So I decided I wanted to pursue it because I was I was drawn to the tools. I always mm-hmm. liked working with my hands. And I had gone to a camp in the summertime, an arts, and an arts camp, a sort of a work camp um, called Bucks Rock. And I had been on the construction crew there. And the campers built buildings. They would have professionals come in in the winter and lay foundations. And then the campers would come in the summer, and we would frame the houses and put roofs on and walls, tar paper the roof, and, you know, we'd build essentially cabins and, and uh, halls for activities for the camp. And uh, that had been sort of my basis for wanting to be interested in architecture. Um, But um, as I say, I always liked working with my hands and using tools. And when I saw these editing tools, I wanted to learn how to use them. So a friend of mine arranged for me to get a job as a gopher for a small industrial film company at 45th Street and Park Avenue in New York. And um, in my first couple of weeks, running errands there, I met a negative cutter who was looking for someone to train. So I gave my two weeks notice. After two weeks, I gave two weeks notice, and I left to go work for this negative cutter. I worked for him for about six months. I learned the whole technical end of the business, how negatives prepared for printing and how it goes into the lab and so forth. Once I had learned all I could with the negative cutter, it became very boring, and he was a screamer, so I decided to leave his employ. By chance, I heard about a job um, as an assistant to a trailer editor who was looking for help. And even though I wasn't an assistant editor, I knew enough to to pass as one. And I went to work for him. And um, after a brief time, he was working for a trailer company that was doing trailers for United Artists and MGM. And after a short while, he's having more work than he could handle. So he started passing stuff off to me, and the client liked what I did, and then I started getting more work, and that was it. I was editing trailers and featurettes, which are little documentaries about the making of features, publicity films. Mm -hmm. So you're learning first how to go into even more compressed, maybe the short story form or the poem form of filmmaking, and then was that helpful that you found when you actually had the space to work on the, the full feature? Yeah, I mean, the thing about trailers is it's all rhythm. It's all about rhythm. And I had played the drums, so it came very naturally to me to to pick up on the idea of film editing as sort of uh, musical interpretation. So um, it's a little misleading because the things that I learned in trailer editing don't apply to feature editing. And when I first got my chance to do a feature film, 
uh, I realized that I really, I went into it with great confidence. I was 23 years old, and I said, I thought to myself, yeah, I can do that, and not knowing what I didn't know. Mm. So it was the confidence of the ignorant. I discovered that with trailers, you're editing film that's already been edited and compressing and stylizing and making, like you say, little poems. It's that idea of a interpretation of something larger in a short form, a distillation. And uh, you have to you know, have an element of showmanship and pizzazz. Those things were fine, except that I didn't know how to look at dailies and determine where to cut. Yeah. And it, was, it was new to me. <laughs> this is a whole different ballgame. Um, so I learned a lot on that first film. Uh, fortunately, Brian De Palma, who was the director, was also young and learning, and uh, we were sort of learning at individual crafts at the same time. And you worked together with Brian De Palma how many times? Like over 10 times? 11? 11, 11, 11 times. Pictures. It's an amazing through the arc of both of your careers. And you've also worked with other, um, uh, George Lucas, you worked with others on a number of occasions. So that must be interesting, the shorthands that you developed. But as you said, you were getting used to that with that first film, you're getting used to watching dailies. Um, yeah, I would love to know what how you make those decisions. How do you look at the same scene, like maybe 40 times, or with all these different angles and define which one's the best? Right, well, it's an interpretive thing. It's, it's uh, you know, as a child, as a young man, uh, I loved to dance. I was, I was a good dancer when I was young. Because of your and, mother, uh, yes. This is also in dance. Yeah, she always, she always encouraged me to dance. In fact, one of our apartments, we had a big round mirror uh, that had come from, from a vanity that was gone. All that was left was this big round mirror, mm-hmm. and it was leaning against the wall. And when I was three or four years old, I would put on music and dance in front of this mirror. Essentially, dancing is interpretive. You, you listen to the music, and you find how it moves you and what you choose to do, uh, how you react to the music. And... My father, being a painter, would always talk about being faced with a blank canvas, you know, like a writer has a blank page. The painter has to deal with a blank canvas. Um, and he sort of elevated those arts to a higher level than the interpretive arts, mm-hmm. you know, which I, I suppose is valid, you know. But on the other hand, if there weren't a... Um, you know, a Horowitz to interpret Beethoven, what good would Beethoven be? There have to, you have to have an interpretive artist to bring what's on the page to life. You know? uh-huh. So uh, there's a place for both in, in the world of, of art. I think that editing is an interpretive art. You look at the material and, and you react to it. You, know, you, say, you make decisions about what do I want to reveal at the beginning of the scene and what do I want to save for the end and how do I, you know, how do I want to build to a particular impact? Or if you look at all the dailies for a scene, you find these moments and you think, how can I use these moments to best advantage? What's the best way to present this? Whether the intention is comedic or dramatic or, or horrific or whatever, the, whatever you're trying to achieve, you're trying to get the maximum uh, effect from the material by... Uh, eliminating what's not necessary and highlighting what you keep in the in the most uh, effective way. Your question about 
how do you look at a scene over and over and over and make decisions about it? It's a little bit like those puzzles they used to, uh, games they used to have in the newspaper. They would say, what's wrong with this picture? And you look at the picture and you say, well, the cow is on the roof, you know, or the cat has two tails, or, you know, um, the bicycle has only one wheel, or whatever, you know, whatever the, you have to find the things that are wrong with the picture. And editing to, to a certain extent is like that. You watch the film and you, you wait for things to strike you as wrong. What, what's wrong? You know, you, you're looking for things that, oh, this is too long, this is too short. This moment doesn't land. Um, I, I, didn't, I didn't understand that, or, you know, this cut is, uh, is awkward, or, you know, and you look for things that worry you, that bother you, and eventually you run out of these things. Well, all right, that's working. You watch it. You know, keep yourself open to to uh, things that that are wrong, and eventually you run out of things that are wrong. And then you start having to show it to other people to see if anything strikes them as wrong. Whether they get the plot, whether they understand it, whether they hear every line of dialogue, you have to get some feedback because it's just, you know it's essentially a method of communication. So you have to test whether you're effectively communicating what, what it is you want to say. I think it's interesting, and I think when I was growing up, because as I'm also a painter, and also my other first love was writing, and, and I think among those two kinds of artists, and not screenwriting, but like prose for the page, um, yeah, they value the, um, what are, I guess, the non-interpretive arts. But I think that all the arts can be seen as interpretive, because hopefully it's interpreting life, you know, so hopefully it's based on something, you know, that's yeah. alive. Um but I've, over the years, really come to appreciate more the collaborative arts. I also love dance. I dance every day. But uh, the collaborative arts, because, yes, it, it's not all dependent on you, but you contribute to it, but you're also developing the life. of You're accommodating the perspectives of others, I think. And if you look at painters, I'm just thinking now it's the 500th anniversary of Da Vinci's death. And, you know, we keep on going back to this Mona Lisa just because, you know, this smile or this ambiguity. The, the years he spent on that painting just to get like a kind of moment like between two, uh, a, a transition, like a little transition between is it a smile or something else. The kind of transition that you get, you know, thousands of times in a film. You know what I mean? Like that a person can be two things, can indicate one thing or another. So I really value the complexity of film. And then the painters have to work so hard, and they get, like, one image. Maybe they have to do a whole sequence of paintings to get the complexity of character. Film has, you know? I mean, if you look at the history of painting, you realize that it was not until photography came along that there was any competition for painters. I mean, painters were the only source of images Today, it's unimaginable. We're bombarded with so many images constantly. You know, we watch our screens. Even if you're reading a newspaper article, there are images being sent to you and, and bombarded on the side of the screen. Or you walk in the street, they have illuminated billboards that flash images at you. You go into the subway, and images are being flashed at you on the platform, on the train. Uh, we're just bombarded with images. But if you go back a couple of hundred years, there were no images in life unless you went into a museum or you went into a church or it was a very different world in terms of images and to be able to create 
a thing of beauty with with paint was extraordinary. These were magicians, these people who could do this. Mm. Uh, and the camera came along, and anybody could take a picture. You know, I mean, this is one of the things my father suffered from in terms of the commercial acceptance of his work. When abstract expressionism came in, the kind of the kind of painting that he was interested in doing, which was social realism, was abandoned and, and sneered at, which is peculiar to me because if you look at the work of Robert Frank, for instance, where he's taking pictures of ordinary people and capturing the nobility and dignity of their lives, even though they're poor or in difficult circumstances, so that's considered praiseworthy, whereas if you do it in painting, it's considered contemptible, cheap. Yeah. You know, it's like you're appealing to sentiment or something. So it's very peculiar. Uh, the painters have a dilemma, and I find that the, the, uh, the, the world of painting is very arbitrary, and for me, it's hard to respect a lot of what's going on in painting these days. Yeah. Not that I know that much all about it. It's a very different role that painters play today than they played, you know, for thousands of years up to couple of hundred years ago. Sure, yeah, part of that displacement that has to do with photography and um, filmmaking and it, um, and the beauty, which is so, it was so embraced in filmmaking and photography, is in a kind of dubious position in painting. <laughs> so it be, somehow becomes kitsch because it's in paint or it becomes too emotional or, or nostalgic or something. So yeah, it is a dilemma, but I think that that might be more to do with the the critics who want to maybe make their their money out of making something complicated or difficult to understand, which should be immediate. It is interesting um, that visual pleasure is one that's really uh, the domain of, of film, and that uh, painters have to apologize for it. So um, it would make sense that you were drawn to cinema, where you could uh, indulge those things without apologizing for them. Well, to me, it was. It was just something I fell into that I discovered that I had a knack for and I enjoyed doing. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, and I saw it as... I came to it from an interest in the arts. Mm. Uh, I met people in California when I moved here who were editors, very good editors, who had gotten into it because their uncle uh, had gotten them a job in the mailroom. Mm. And it was either that or pump gas out in the San Fernando Valley. So they went to, job, went to work on the, at the studio uh, in the mailroom and then they needed an apprentice in the editing department, and they went over there, and one thing led to another, and they become film editors. Uh, you know, it was sort of an accidental path for them that had nothing to do with art or the appreciation of aesthetics or anything like that. You know, it was just a craft that they learned from the ground up, and they became very good at it. You don't have to be educated to be a good film editor. Right. Uh, it's a knack that people have or don't have. Um, I don't believe it can be taught any more than singing can be, I mean, you can, you can teach singing, but you can't make somebody a good singer, yeah. you know. Uh, you can take singing lessons, it doesn't mean you're going to learn how to sing. My name is Taya Puradovic, and I'm a junior getting her bachelor's in communications in Spanish at DePaul University in Chicago. I'm an associate podcast producer and interviewer for The Creative Process. The way Paul Hirsch connected his former drumming pursuits to a sort of musical interpretation of film editing stood out to me. When we dance, we accent our movements with the beat of the drum. Our bodies follow and interpret the sound. 
I used to play piano, and the moment I started getting a hang of the rhythm, I was motivated to keep going. Before each new piece I learned, I would sit back and sway in the sonic euphoria of my piano teacher's perfected tempo. Similar to the various pieces that contribute to the rhythm of a song, the way scenes are cut create the rhythm of the film. So as a listener or viewer, it's difficult to interpret when the next cut will come or when the next symbol will crash. We sit in anticipation with the characters as immersed observers. Rhythm is a feeling. I don't doubt that experience playing an instrument, especially the drums, helped her step into the visual rhythm and art of film editing. We see the impact of rhythm in Hirsch's work in the original Carrie from 1976. Warning, spoiler alert. Watching the film is an entire experience, so I recommend you view it regardless. Hirsch builds up our anxiety during prom night. When Carrie gets called on stage, there's a whole minute of footage where Carrie walks in slow motion to the stage with a bright smile on her face and tears in her eyes. We get immersed in this moment where we finally get to see Carrie happy and enjoying herself. It's long enough to get us emotionally involved, as the image flips over to the clapping and smiling gym teacher and high schoolers. Soon enough, we're reminded of the plot against her. We see her from the perspective of her arch nemesis, Chris, staring out from under the staircase, waiting for her plan to follow through. This is the climax of the film. It wouldn't be long before anxiety peaks, the gym goes up in flames, and we start rooting for Carrie from our living room couches. We become so angry and empathetic toward her, we commend her destruction in the end, and hopefully come out of the movie wanting to be better people. This scene particularly displays a stark contrast and anticipation and feeling for Carrie and for the audience. The film editing of Carrie appeals to our senses in a real and relatable way, considering the fact it immerses us into the events, watching them all unfold on the screen within an hour and 38 minutes. Although the film is based on a book by Stephen King, the visual element shows us the destruction that came from a lack of understanding empathy, and kindness. Film editing interprets life in the way it serves life. We view films and we feel a certain way. We connect with the characters and we're intrigued to learn more. As a result, we also get something out of it. A new lesson, a new thought, a new perspective. The rhythm of a story moves our hearts. It moves our emotions and it moves our way of thinking. In this, Paul Hirsch has proved to excel. In terms of stages in the collaborative process, you're at um, you're at not the the final stage, but you're towards the end of that process. You know, I guess you know all the other elements are in place, the script is in place, whatever. And I guess music then comes at the very end, or whatever. You know, I've interviewed a number of writers, and they they write their baby, and then they give their baby away, and they don't get to see their baby, <laughs> or it comes back to them at the very end. Who is that? That's not my baby. So would you like to, I mean, in terms of the areas you're attracted to, would you like having that loss of control of something you initiated in the beginning? Or do you like being at this level of control? I know that there's a collaboration, of course, but do you like being at the end stage where you can really be in that process? There are other factors that, that get into it as well. I mean, uh, for instance, as an editor, I was able to go from picture to picture Whereas as a writer, uh, it's not that easy to, mm -hmm. to keep working. I mean, you can work on things 
and not sell them. I guess you're not getting any money for it. But yeah. uh, you know, a few privileged writers get to work regularly. Uh, being a director, for instance, unless again, unless you're one of the privileged few, is like running for office for the rest of your life. You're constantly campaigning and trying to convince people to have confidence in you, give you money, and give you a job. Whereas as an editor, uh, I was able to go from project to project without too much. I mean, I, I used to go maybe six months without a job at, at the longest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I like, I'm happiest when I'm busy. And uh, these jobs would last anywhere from six months to over a year. It suits me to be that busy. Um, I like the collaborative process that I, you know, as, as a camper at camp, I was part of the team that built the building. I, I w- went back there later. My kids went to the same camp, and I saw the director, and I said, you know, what I learned at camp here served me so well in my career because it's very similar. You, know, you have a design for a building, which is like a script, mm-hmm. and then you have all these different crafts that are applied to it, and you work with a team, and you take little steps every day, and then eventually, over time, you've put together something that will last for years. Um, so it's a very similar process. I like being part of the team. Um, I have a lot of autonomy uh, for a while, uh, depending on whom I'm working with. And um, yeah, I'm comfortable in the thing about film. Although it's collaborative, it's very hierarchical as well. And you have a lot of artistically inclined people working on a project. The uh, production designer, costume designer, hair and makeup people. These are all very creative people. Uh, The editor and the composer and so forth, the cinematographer. But only one person is allowed to be the artist in the sense of being able to say yes or no, this is the way it has to be, and that's the director. So it's collaborative to the degree that you're allowed to be collaborative. It's not like a, you know, it it can vary from a wonderful situation to a terrible situation, depending who you're working with. Uh, In my book, I left out the terrible situations because I've been so fortunate in my career. I I don't think anyone wanted to hear me complain about this guy didn't listen to me and he was a jerk or he was rude to me or he was insensitive. I left that stuff out. But... Like I say, it depends on who you're working with as far as what the collaboration feels like, whether you're allowed to make a contribution or not. I think that that is great that when you're you're not having to spend, as you said, a lot of time with the negotiations, the things that seem parallel to the the project itself, so that you're just, when you're working, you're free to just be always getting better and better. And I can understand the frustrations of having all of it on your shoulders, as within a director or a script writer who's, you know, doing these things on spec or whatever. Um, I can see the attractions there. So in terms of, yeah, we mentioned um, like George Lucas or John Hughes, Brian De Palma, these collaborators that you we worked with um, notably on a number of occasions. To speak a little bit about how those projects initiated, you know, and then the creative bonds, um, you know, what was it like in the um, editing rooms with them? Um, well, again, it varies from person to person. Brian, who was my patron and uh, mentor, Mm. gave me a lot of freedom, although he always maintained ultimate 
you know, say so over how things would be at the end. But he would encourage me to, to work on my own. And uh, he liked what I did and sort of an ideal situation where I describe my relationship with Brian as like a film running in reverse. We started out almost as brothers, then we became friends, then we became colleagues, then we became acquaintances, and then we became strangers. So, um, for a long while, I was very close and intimate and friendly and warm, and then um, eventually, you know, other things intrude. We got out of sync with each other, and he started working with other people. I started working with other people, mm-hmm. and I moved to the West Coast. He stayed in New York. So there were things that sort of interfered in the relationship, but um, when we got back together, it was always very close uh, and, and clear communication between us. As he aged and matured as an artist, he became more and more certain of what he wanted, which is fine. You know, that's, that's his right. I mean, I love Brian, and, and uh, I sort of regret that we didn't get to do more pictures together. Well, um, 11 is quite a few. Um, would you tell me a little bit, because you mentioned like six months to a year on some of these projects. And does yeah. that mean you're um, in the editing room <laughs> with them for like six months to a year? I mean, how does, that's like, that is like a brother. Yeah, it's a very close relationship. Yeah. Um, well, part of that six months is uh, the period of physical production where mm-hmm. they're director's away somewhere, so I'm not with them every day, although we may talk every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's, at the end of principal photography, the studios have to give directors 10 weeks to produce their cut. Um, so we work intensely together for 10 weeks. And then at that point, uh, we start doing uh, looping, re- replacing dialogue that's poorly recorded or improving performances, and we're working on the music, and we're working on sound effects, we're working on visual effects and so forth, so we're not focused solely on the editing, but uh, sort of the finishing of the film, the, uh, the polishing and the, the dressing of all the elements that comprise the, the finished product. On a visual effects film, the, the effects come in over a series of months, and you're looking at each shot and making criticisms and then they go back and they make changes and, um, and I try to always supply the perspective of how does it work in the context of the cut. It's a very tedious process, at least I find it tedious uh, to look at these shots over and over again. Uh, I could save the studios millions and millions of dollars every year by instituting a simple rule, which is they, when you're looking at visual effects shots, you would not be allowed to stop on a frame. Uh-huh have to see it in motion because once they stop and look at the frame then they start picking up all these things these details that have nothing to do with the function of the shot in the context of the cut and they spend a lot of time and money polishing things that the audience is never aware of you mentioned it being sometimes uh, tedious to look at these things many times over how do you keep fresh just as though you had never seen it before well, you can't do that. You have, you know, you only, as Herbert Ross used to say, you only get one opportunity to see the picture for the first time. Mm-hmm. We have to concentrate on the details down to the very frame that we decide to, to, to cut on, and we have to concentrate as well on the entire experience. 
the, the micro and the macro, you have to keep a balance between the two considerations. Um, very important. Le uh, very important lesson I learned on the very first film I did, which is that even if you edit each scene beautifully, it doesn't mean that the film overall is well edited, because there's a totality to the experience, and um, it's like I sometimes compare it to a meal. You know, no matter how food, the, uh, how good the food is, eventually the audience gets full and they don't want eat that. They don't want any more. You know. Yeah. So um, you have to balance the the momentary experience with the overall, and um, it, it's it's an interesting uh, task because if it were any easier, it would be boring. Mm. But if it were any more difficult, <laughs> difficult, it would be too challenging. You know, so it's sort of in that. I've, at least for me, I find it in that middle area where it's just challenging enough to keep you interested and not, you know, so hard that you give up. Yeah. And when you became involved with um, Star Wars, I, were you aware of the phenomenon it would be? No. No, none of us did. I mean, I thought it was a wonderful picture, and I was excited to be on it and part of it, you know. But, uh, no, I mean, I don't know any other picture that's had the kind of impact that it has odd, you know, I've thought about this a lot because like the James Bond pictures mm -hmm. there have been many more James Bond pictures, yeah. the franchise is over 50 years old you know, and Bond has had an impact on the culture, but not in the way that Star Wars has mm -hmm. uh, I just find that Star Wars generates a kind of uh, passion and, and uh, I don't know and it's, and it's universal, it seems to be across you know, nations different cultures uh, are all caught up in the uh, phenomenon. Is it true that he'd been looking to the books of Joseph Campbell? So maybe this kind of spiritual, moral underpinning of the hero's journey, I mean, you can see then, like then subsequently, like with Matrix or whatever, that there had been like iterations of developing that, but I hadn't seen that before. I think that that's probably why it's enduring. That's just my opinion. Uh, he didn't talk much about Joseph Campbell when we were working on it. I think he started talking about it after the picture came out. I mean, but uh, I'm not sure about that. But I, I thought the most insightful thing I read about Star Wars that watching the movie, you weren't watching a movie, you were watching the movies because it comprised so many different genres in one. There was the the Western with the shootout in the saloon and, you know, uh, and the Indians and attacking the wagon train in the past. And there was Robin Hood and the sword fights in the castle and rescuing the, the princess. And there was uh, World War II fighter plane uh, war movies from the South Pacific. And there were all these, all these movies jumbled up in, and sort of cut up and stir-fried into something fresh, mm. you know, and watching the movie, you were watching all the movies you'd ever seen in your life. So it was a, a, a sort of a precis of the entire culture. So did, so having these um, echoes or um, references to um, the history of cinema, um, did, were there certain were you shown things before the editing process that you would be told um, we'd like to have a feel or an echo or something to resonate in that manner? No. 
Uh, I came into the picture late. Mm-hmm. Um, the original editor was fired after the principal photography. George found himself very far behind schedule at the end of principal photography. He, essentially, he felt that the entire first cut was a, was was wrong and had to be redone. And uh, you don't want to be in that position at the end of shooting. Mm-hmm. So uh, he had hired uh, Richard Chu in California work on the film, and his wife, Marsha, who is an accomplished editor on, uh, on her own right, the two of them were going to recut the picture, and Marsha realized very quickly that they needed help. They weren't going to finish without more help. So that's when I was invited to join them. So I joined the picture last of all, you know, I think, so I guess there were four editors hired. I was the fourth one hired. The English editor never came back. The, the three of us worked together for three months. And then I was asked to take over at that point and just be the single editor for the last five months. So I had wound up working on the picture for more months than anyone else, which is why they put my name in first position. But I was the last one hired. Most of my pictures I did from the from the get-go, from the start. Yeah. I, mean, I imagine uh, that's stressful, but is there a certain advantage to coming in later that we're talking about like having the freshness of your eyes or to see what's not working and then you're doctoring it possibly there's also you know the psychological aspect to it which is you know they say a new broom sweeps clean if you bring somebody in you don't want to say well this guy is not as good as the guy we got rid of you know you want to say oh this is a great improvement now (laughs) we have you know i started working correcting all the things that i saw wrong and george seemed to like the choices I was making, and that's, you know, how I wound up with the job. Yeah, and also, obviously, it was well done, too, because you, you won an, Os- an Oscar, yes? Yes. So, so I guess it was, we could say, all around the success. Oscars are accidental. <laughs> well, you say that with humility, but I think, as you rightly say, it uh, really marked the culture. It was my first uh, My first Halloween costume was this R2-D2. I would think everyone <laughs> I'm sure I'm not alone in that. I, wor- I worked with Baz Luhrmann very briefly. Ah, yes. An- another, you know, helping out on a picture that had already been cut on uh, Great Gatsby. And uh, Baz is a very interesting guy. Uh, a lot of fun to work with. Uh, he said that the most you can hope for in the movie business is to make something that becomes part of the culture. Mm. Well, certainly so many of you think, if you think about uh, Carrie, if you think, I don't know what, I, I don't know if you ever name favorites of what the the most interesting working experience or the films that you just wish you could, you know, put that in a bottle. It's hard to pick out favorites, you know. Uh, I don't watch my old films. Mm. Uh, you can imagine, you ask the question, how do you stay fresh when you watch it so many times? Well, eventually, at, when you finish the film, get it prepared for the audience. At that point, you can't stand to watch it anymore. If you, yeah. you feel like if I have to watch this film one more time, I'd rather put my eyes out than watch it one more time. You know, as far as favorites, you know, it's hard to say. I like the films I did with John Hughes because they make people laugh. I mean, when you work on a comedy that's a, a successful comedy, it makes yeah. people laugh. Yeah. Instant joyous feedback you get sitting in the audience. You hear people, you know, respond viscerally uh, and vocally. Whereas you work on a drama, if it's really working, everyone is dead quiet. Comedy is really fun because you get that instant feedback of, of how the audience is feeling. And
and uh, Star Wars had some of that as well. There was a lot of cheering, and you know. I understand that with um, John Hughes, as much as um, as as um, memorable and humorous as those films were, and making people laugh, the editing was quite complex in terms of the way he produced his scripts and produced the footage. Yeah, his process was uh, unique. He would write these brilliant first drafts and then never change them. And he wouldn't allow anyone else to rewrite him either. So um, he would wind up with these screenplays that were way too long. And everyone knew it. Uh, even he knew it, I suppose. But he insisted on shooting that draft of the, of the script. And then when he got to the editing process, he would throw stuff out right and left. It was mm -hmm. very odd. You know, you would think it would be a lot easier make the cuts on the page mm -hmm. and go to all the trouble of shooting that scene and then throwing it out without looking at it twice, you know? He was a uh, mad genius. Yeah, it seems like a bit wasteful, but I mean, and then I'm, not, I'm just wondering, oh, yeah. I'm just wondering because this probably wasn't his strategy, but then I had heard, was it Emil Brooks or something? I, I can't remember, but uh, some filmmaker has some gags or maybe obscenities in the, in the film, and uh, so they showed the, the long cut to the producers, and then they said, well, you have to, because there were so many things, so he said, they said, well, you have to take out this and this, and then the filmmaker was happy because he got to keep the thing that he really wanted to keep. So I wonder, is there an unconscious strategy, perhaps, in that? By creating so much, there's going to yeah. be... He's no, going to be in control in the end. It's not at all unconscious. I mean, we do that all the time. There are these bargaining chips you, you put in that you're willing to give up, you know, so, to protect other things. You put, in, you put in things that are objectionable so that you can have... You know, you give them something they can take out. They feel they've made a contribution. It's important. I mean, I don't, I don't know what it's like now because you've really seen a huge. I don't know if it's evolution or change in the way. You know, films always made by committee, but you've seen a change in the way. I guess because you're talking about working with auteurs and the, like in the seventies, and you know, um, yeah. so what it's like now and how. Yeah, it's quite different now. Yeah, how is it like to navigate, or do you not get too involved in that aspect? Well, I've pretty much stopped working as an editor now. And, you know, I, I think about, or I had been thinking about going back to work. Mm -hmm. But because um, I enjoy the process, uh, except that the last few pictures that I've helped out on uh, have not been enjoyable. Mm -hmm. And um, it's hard for me to think of a director uh, I respect sufficiently to work for. Right. You know, editing is a... Um, it's a, you know, it's a job where you're you're subordinate to to someone else, and when you're a young man working as a subordinate seems fine. When you're working for older people, mm -hmm. Herbert was Herbert Ross was like 17 years older than me, and Brian is five years older than me. And, you know, but uh, when you get to be uh, an older man and you're working for younger people who have less experience, um, it's hard to accept the, the role of a subordinate sometimes. And would you ever like to get, I mean, it's a different kind of storytelling, but would you ever like to get involved with editing uh, documentaries or maybe you would have more creative control over it, less subordination? Or... Well, when I think about it, it seems just, it just seems like a lot of work. Yeah, and not as many rewards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Oliver Sacks wrote a wonderful essay toward the end of his life where mm-hmm. he talked about the Sabbath, you know. Mm-hmm. And I look back at my life, and I've worked for about 50 years, and I think, you know, maybe it's time to put the tools down and enjoy the Sabbath. You've certainly created a, a huge body of work, very enjoyable. I wonder also, I mean, gosh, there's so many going back, also Ray with Taylor Hackford. Um, I think that's just a beautiful film as well. Yeah, um, Mm. It's so poetic, the the whole montage of images, and and it's again, it's a it's a film about the creative process. So I'm I'm drawn to stories about that. And his voice is so soulful. Mm-hmm. I just loved, you know, for me, music is my first love, and getting a chance to work on music films is is. You ask about my favorites, I would say the ones where I got to work intimately with the music, you know, mm-hmm. cutting to the music, or those are the ones I really enjoy doing. Yeah, that's a mysterious process for people is that they don't, we don't understand. We we get to enjoy it in its final state, in the cinema and the music and everything is perfect. Uh, but often you're you're cutting to temp music. Again, you're kind of you're editing into a, a void or into a, an unknown. Um, what are some of the other unknowns as you edit into it? Like you have to like imagine, oh, this scene is coming. I have to think it's there. This music is coming. It could sort of be like this, like in terms of the planning areas of your brain. I don't, I don't know how all that works. Yeah, I don't know either. Um, in, case, in the in the instance of music, what you do is you find already already recorded music that would be uh, the right character of what you're looking for, mm. or other people are looking. It depends, you know, how collaborative the music situation is, but. Um, you find music that's similar to what you're going to be eventually asking the composer to write, mm-hmm. and you edit to that, and then um, it's a sort of a stand-in or a placeholder for the music that's going to come later. Mm-hmm. So it's really not that complicated. Um, sometimes you have to make adjustments when the final music comes in. The most challenging aspect of what you're talking about happened to me when I was working on Warcraft. Mm-hmm where they did a lot of motion capture uh, photography, uh, which they have actors dressed up in suits that have reflective beads all over their bodies, and then the visual effects people use those beads to create animated characters whose movements correspond to what the actors did on the stage. But it's a very distant process. It's a long way to go from the actual principal photography to the finished product, so there's a lot you have to imagine and very often you don't have sufficient imagination to take into consideration things that if you had them in the first place they would have been factors that you would consider but since you didn't have them mm-hmm. you didn't take them into consideration I don't know if that's clear but yeah. um, it's challenging because you're working with so little information that you have to make guesses and then when you see the finished film, the finished shot, it's different from what you thought. So I had an acronym for it, LPOI, Limited Powers of Imagination. You can only imagine so much, you know. And then, uh, for instance, on Mission Impossible, we had a train sequence, and um, there are angles of crews hanging on to this high-speed train on the outside, and there were shots across the train where you see the the walls of the tunnel going by, left to right behind him. And then there were shots behind him shooting down the length of the tunnel. Mm. And I couldn't really imagine what those would look like. And when I actually saw them, 
when they delivered those shots, they were so dynamic that I regretted that I hadn't used more of them. But I hadn't been able to imagine what they would look like. It's so much more complicated now with the digital uh, tools that um, there's so many ways you can push and pull the material. Um, it gets very complex. You can slow things down. You can speed things up. You can change the image. You can, you know, you can erase things in the image. You can. There's all sorts of things you can do that were not traditionally part of editing, you know, when I spent 25 years cutting film and I spent another 25 years working on computers, cutting the images digitally. And in the first 25 years, what you got on film, that was it. That was sort of, so your, your, uh, the art was to make the most of it through deciding when to begin the shot, when to end it, and in what context to put it. Mm -hmm. um, but then it becomes much more complicated when you have all the other dimensions that you have to take into consideration. Yeah, I can, in terms of uh, speaking of some other films that I can't even imagine where they age a character, you know, by 50 years, or they do all this complex face tuning, body tuning. I can't even, I can't even get into it. I don't know. Uh, I can barely operate my phone, so I'm I'm not qualified to speak of these things. But uh, Mission Impossible, what's it like to um, work with Tom Cruise, and in terms of the precision of his vision, because I know he's involved in producing too. And Tom is um, the most intense person I've ever met, mm -hmm. and uh, he's inspiring because he works as hard as anyone I've ever met. Mm -hmm. He's tireless. He has a, a drive that's unique in my experience, and and he's very positive most of the time. I mean, I've I've heard he can he can be unhappy. You know, uh, I haven't seen it that much myself, but whenever I saw him, you know, I'd say, "Hey, Tom, how you doing?" He said, "Living the dream." You know, <laughs> making movies. It was he just seems to enjoy what he's doing so much, and uh, he's just. He gives 110 percent. He there's no director in Hollywood who wouldn't love to work with him, and he's worked with the best. He's worked with Kubrick, yeah. with Scorsese, Coppola, De Palma, you know, Oliver Stone. He's worked with every Spielberg, but mm -hmm. more than once, you know. And so every director would love to have him in their movie because he's such a hard worker and yeah. and he's such a dynamic uh, presence on the screen. Yeah, you can't. He's, he's the real deal. Yeah, he's so it's 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 beautiful to see that. I can imagine that intensity and that positivity. I think that uh, you know we're in an age where so many people are cynical. You know, they're like, uh, you know, uh, but I, I I really I like that positive energy. I, I believe it is the only way you can get great things done. Um, and what were some other, uh, you know, people who like forces of nature? I, I imagine him as a force of nature. The person who immediately comes to mind is Bernard Herrmann, mm -hmm. who was perhaps the most unforgettable person I've ever met. Um, he and I worked on two films together, and the first one was Sisters. On, uh, it had been my my choice of his music as temp music that led to his being hired on the film. Mm -hmm. But I wound up being the whipping boy on that picture. He's understanding that I write about in the book where he he unloaded on me for something that I didn't that I hadn't done. 
and then uh, there's a story in, in um, Brothers Karamazov where um, two men are walking down the street and they see it. one of them says oh there's Nicholas let's cross the street I don't want to see him and the other one says why Nicholas is the nicest guy in the world and the first one says yeah but I did a terrible thing to him once and now I can't stand him so it was sort of like that um, with Benny and me you know he yelled at me unprovoked I wound up being the whipping boy on the first picture and then yeah, between the two pictures Brian wrote an article in the Village Voice where he described that it had been my my idea to put Benny's music in the film which led to him being hired so when he came on the second picture which was Obsession he greeted me very warmly and we became mm -hmm. friends so I went from whipping boy to golden boy mm -hmm. and uh, it was a really uh, remarkable terribly rewarding experience for me I was 26 and uh spent time with him and I learned a lot from him and he said things that engraved themselves into my mind and he was a force of nature he was he had a volcanic temper it was, it was related to his sensitivity to um, you know the kind of bruises and bumps that people sort of shrug off in life he couldn't do that he would take everything very hard but you know he had tremendous uh, courage in his in his art, you know, he was very bold, and his music was, you know, so I, I sometimes think of it as like kicking the door down, you know, there was nothing tentative about his choices, he was, you know, he was extraordinary, he was, he was really uh, unforgettable. Yeah, and I, and I think of his music, I mean, it's scoring, it's marking it, you know, um, uh, with some composers, it's very subtle, right? <laughs> and um, but you, it's unmistakable. He has a real signature. Yeah. If you think about um, education, the future, the environment, this thing that we're all reflecting on now as we find ourselves in strange times, um, what do you feel are some things that you like? How would you like to change some of our current systems to make to make them better so we can have a better future? Boy, I wish I had an answer for you. I don't know if these are thoughts that relate to what you're asking, but I, I'm I'm concerned about how the uh, movie business is going to come through this current period. There have been these um, occasional shocks to the business mm -hmm. when sound was introduced, when television came along, when videotape came along, when DVDs came along. That all these new platforms, ways of seeing films um, changed uh, how the business worked and pandemic aside, we're going through a period where now where people are largely abandoning theaters mm -hmm. to a great degree and turning to streaming mm -hmm. as a way of seeing films and everybody's getting on Netflix I mean it's accelerated by the pandemic but I think this was a trend that was happening already where people were, you know, people now have 65-inch televisions in their homes with great resolution, high def and sound systems and that rival anything you see in the theater. So uh, the theater, theaters react by, you know, to a shrinking audience by raising their prices, which is exactly the opposite of what, you, you know, what, what is logical. So mm -hmm. I just don't know that kids today care about movies 
the Palmer used to talk, he used to predict that movies would be someday be like opera, where mm-hmm. you'd have a very small but passionate audience, and the performances would be very expensive, mm-hmm. but that most people wouldn't care at all about it, you know, and it was supported by this you know, small, intense, passionate, you know, uh, group of supporters. And I think that's that seems to be on its way to coming true. Mm-hmm. Uh, the kids today, I don't think they care about movies at all. I think they care about influencers on social apps mm-hmm. and YouTube and Twitter. I don't know all the apps, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is what's making the culture, the video game players. You can sort of tell uh, that you're getting aged out of the culture by... I, I like to do crossword puzzles. Mm-hmm. And now I'm seeing clues about things I know nothing about, you know, character in a video game, you know. These are, the kids today are shaping the culture in ways that have not too much to do with movies. I mean, movies as an art form, I don't know what the future is for movies as an art form, I really don't. Uh, It's changing. There are these new forms, like, you know, series that people like to binge on, where you can have a story that takes many hours to tell. When they're good, they're great. When they're not, you know, they're forgettable. I I just don't see where the business is going uh, in the future because I don't know that it's going to stay real. You know, the, the pictures that come out are Pixar movies, superhero movies. They target the least critical and most easily manipulated portion of the audience. Uh, as their as their target audience, so they make movies for teenage boys mm. and children or young families want to take their children out to see a movie. See see the uh, the Disney films, you know the cartoons and um, and then the superhero stuff. And then they're not really making movies like uh, Casablanca. Who would make Casablanca today? Nobody. You know, it's hard to be optimistic uh, in this day and age. I studied Western civilization at Columbia University, and I never dreamed that the Enlightenment, which produced the philosophers who dreamed up the United States Constitution, would be under attack uh, in this country, that, that you would have to mount a defense of the, of the principles of the Enlightenment. Uh, against concentrated rejection by vast segments of the population. It's very disturbing to me. Oh, it is. I think if only one can focus on the positives, it makes those who value, you know, defending the Constitution, defending the projection of cinema in, you know, in in a proper place that gives the art form, um, you know, justice, social justice, um, it makes those defend it a bit more strongly. In terms of cinema, I don't have any answers for it. I know the streaming is going to continue. I know that when we have vaccines and everything, that people are, will be hungry for going out like never before. I know that. So yeah. if cinemas can kind of combine, because I understand it was um, like maybe even a little bit more social. So if cinemas can be a little more social, like it's a collective experience, but that when you arrive, you just don't go home when it's done. So, you know, it's a it's a way for people, if you make more of an event out of it, I think that that's a way that's uh, 
people are hungry to, to meet people and gather um, when it's safe to go out. Um, you put your finger on what the problem is, which is that when they release films on streaming, there is no event. Mm-hmm. It's just suddenly it's there, and um, it's not like, you know, oh, let's go see the new movie on Friday night. It's just, you know, it's, they've changed the, the entertainment experience into mm-hmm. a utility, like electricity or water. You turn on the tap and it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no excitement about the event. Um, is, is, they're going to have to rethink this. I mean, I, they're going to have to find some way to make it an event, you know, because um, otherwise it's just wallpaper, you know. Well, I'm sentimental for a certain period that I never lived through, but I experienced it by watching them in movies, which was the Supper Club, which was, as you say, maybe it's a little bit elite, it's becoming a little bit like opera, but it's something, you go see the cinema, and then there are some experiences around it that make that unique to, like, you see the film, and then you can, you know, engage in a social experience around that, and it is a great, you know... um, you know, they're great talking points, cinema. You know, it gives you lots of ideas. You know, they give you they're great films that um, give you something to come away with. And if that can be maybe prolonged in a cinema, in the sense of, I mean, we still, luckily in Paris, have uh, what you call in America movie palaces. Um, you know, oh, you know, right around the, I live in the, the fifth, or the edge of the fifth and the sixth, where all the cinemas, where a lot of the cin- old cinemas are. So, um, Paris is very different, and I, yeah. you know, it's sort of one of the things I love about Paris, but yeah. that's not the situation here. No, it's uh, it's difficult. I, I read just, in, I guess in closing, it was an interesting, it was like, um, it was an acceptance speech of Kevin Costner or something, but it was like a little poem to cinema, and he was remembering about, um, the days when he used to go to the uh, drive-in. Maybe drive-ins will have a comeback because people are afraid to go out in a big cinema. But he was talking about it romantically and then running back to the car and making sure you didn't get beheaded by the antenna wire and, um, you know, fogging up the windows because you're with your girl and then the feeling like this is the best story ever told, you know, and like having that feeling a thousand times. And it was really the magic of cinema. And I know that people feel this, whether it's at home or going out, but there is something magic about the big screen. And I'm old enough to remember just at the very end, I I remember seeing um, an organist, you know, come up from the ground. (laughs) And that was just like, it was like a rare thing. And then they they stopped that. But having a bit of that, this is a special thing, because it is special. Imagine, you know, you know it yourself hundreds of people collaborating on this one thing and getting it all to work. It's this seamless story. Um, getting people to believe in magic is a, it's a, it is special. So I think, you know, having places, monuments to them, just like you have museums for paintings and sculpture, you know, um, I think, I don't think it's something that will go away. Maybe it will become more limited, but if we can hold on to that, um, it's it's worth fighting for, definitely. Anyway. Yeah, well, there's still operas, you know. We, yeah. We, we still have opera. It's, it's still have opera. We'll be watching cinema with our own yes. <laughs> gone away. When the long with the long gloves. <laughs> and, um, and the popcorn. <laughs> in your letter, you talked about the importance of art. Yes. You know, and I thought I was thinking about that, and I thought uh, to me. 
art is the whole point. Yeah. I mean, of all the pursuits that people can engage in, everything else is survival. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You think about it, it's all just, you know, which is important. You know, you have to eat, you have to stay healthy, and, you know, you have to protect yourself from the elements and all the other pursuits that people engage in. Mm-hmm. But all that stuff is geared just to survival. Mm-hmm. But if not for that, the only thing, you know, what's the arts represent what you can do given that, given the life that you're protecting with all those other pursuits, what mm-hmm. do you do with it? You make art. To me, that's the whole point. If you don't make art, there's no point to life. You know? I think so. I think it, we, we know it on an instinctive level when we watch children, you know, young children. Like, if you leave them alone in a room, you know, and I don't know. If no, have, one, no one ever does anymore. <laughs> well, if you did, like you left them with a spoon or a pencil or like whatever, they'll start making music, they'll start dancing around, they'll start drawing or writing, whatever. They'll even like, uh, they'll start like making little images for a sequ- like film sequence, whatever, if you leave them alone long enough. So I think that that is our, our first and natural impulse is art and is telling stories and, yeah. um, so it's been a pleasure to, to speak with you. Um, I, want, I want to thank you um, uh, because you've given us so many memorable and enduring stories uh, which are really part of cinema history. Uh, so thank you, Paul Hirsch, and for inviting us into your imaginative world and illuminating uh, the art of editing and filmmaking. Uh, thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Taya Peradovic. Digital Media Coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Winter Time was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved in our exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works, email us at team at creativeprocess.info.